Imagine you're icing a cookie. You fill up a piping bag with icing and then squeeze the bag to push the icing out of the tip and onto your dessert. You can only get the results you want if you make sure to tie the bag at the top before you squeeze. Otherwise, the icing will come right back out the top. A more complex system in the heart relies on the same simple concept. The idea of one-way valves is critical to the function of each chamber of the heart in generating forward flow. When these valves fail and allow significant retrograde flow, we see the clinical phenomenon of regurgitation. Today, our patient has mitral regurgitation and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast made by medical residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is titled Going Backwards, an Approach to Mitral Regurgitation. Time for our minute physiology. Understanding the basic anatomy of the valve is key to understanding how the many etiologies of MR actually cause regurgitation through the valve. The anterior and posterior leaflets of the mitral valve originate from the mitral annulus, the site at the junction of the left atrium, LA, and ventricle, LV. Each leaflet is connected to the two papillary muscles of the ventricle by the fibrous chordae tendinae. During systole, the pressure increase in the left ventricle co-opts the two leaflets, blocking retrograde flow through the valve. A trivial amount of mitral regurgitation, or MR, may be normal and is identified on echocardiography in up to 70% of healthy adults, but more significant amounts are not. Primary MR is caused by failure or dysfunction of any of the parts of the valve apparatus. Leaflet function can be impaired by degenerative disease, infective endocarditis, rheumatic fever, or other causes such as mitral valve prolapse. The leaflet interaction with the LV can also be affected in cases of papillary muscle infarction and rupture, which can occur as an acute complication of acute coronary syndromes. Regurgitation can also be caused by LV dysfunction and dilatation, which is called functional or secondary MR. This can be caused by any process that affects contraction or causes structural changes to the ventricle itself. Most commonly, this is seen in dilated cardiomyopathies, which widen the mitral annulus and displace the papillary muscles, preventing proper coaptation of the leaflets. Another cause for functional mitral regurgitation is left atrial enlargement, causing mitral annular dilatation and resulting in mitral regurgitation. This frequently occurs in patients with long-standing atrial fibrillation and is often termed functional atrial mitral regurgitation. The left ventricle can compensate for MR in several ways. In acute MR, the LV increases its stroke volume along the Frank-Starling curve to try to maintain adequate forward flow. Despite this, the LA is generally unable to compensate for the regurgitant flow and transmits increased pressure to the pulmonary circulation, which can cause acute pulmonary edema. This rapid-onset pulmonary edema is sometimes termed flash pulmonary edema. The rapid rise in LA pressure in acute severe MR results in less gradient between LV and LA, and therefore the murmur is often soft or inaudible. In chronic primary MR, the LV progressively dilates to accommodate the increased preload. The LA may also dilate to minimize the increase in pulmonary pressures. This results in a high gradient between the LV and LA during systole, so the murmur is often loud and easy to detect. In late or end-stage disease, LV dilatation leads to a reduction in systolic function and the development of heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. The severity of MR can be graded by patient symptoms as well as several parameters measured by transthoracic echocardiography, encompassing valve anatomy and hemodynamics. 
All right, so now that we've talked about the basic physiology, let's talk about the approach. To have a good approach to mitral regurgitation, it is important to think about the different context that is encountered in. There are generally four situations where mitral regurgitation is likely to be seen clinically. As the main problem in a critically ill patient with acute MR, as asymptomatic chronic MR, as severe chronic MR leading to heart failure, or as functional MR from heart failure of a different cause. The large variety of etiologies that cause acute and chronic MR result in a broad range of patient demographics and risk factors that necessitate having a different approach to MR in each context. True acute MR may either be ischemic as a complication of acute myocardial infarction or non-ischemic in patients with a history of degenerative disease, rheumatic disease, infective endocarditis, or trauma who develop ruptured chordae tendinae. These patients generally appear critically unwell with rapid development of pulmonary edema, respiratory distress, hypotension, and cardiogenic shock. Think about acute MR in unstable patients presenting with chest pain, admitted for acute myocardial infarction or infective endocarditis, or in patients with a history of mitral valve prolapse or degenerative mitral valve disease, as these patients can be prone to acute worsening of their mitral regurgitation. Most patients with isolated mild or moderate chronic MR are asymptomatic. As chronic MR progresses, patients generally develop exertional symptoms of fatigue and dyspnea as they progress to severe disease. Chronic regurgitant flow into the LA resulting in LA dilatation may also predispose patients to develop atrial fibrillation. Patients with severe chronic MR present similarly to other patients with decompensated heart failure, and in these cases, it may be difficult to detect the presence of MR at all unless it has been previously diagnosed. The same is true in patients with functional MR. Without echocardiography results or a detailed medical history, it may be difficult to determine which of MR or heart failure is the primary disorder in patients presenting with signs of both. Your first step in the approach to any patient should be to assess for clinical stability. Vital signs, level of consciousness, work of breathing, and the ABCs should all be evaluated especially in patients with MR who may present with critical respiratory or hemodynamic compromise. An evaluation for signs of cardiogenic shock should be completed first. It is important to note that patients with cardiogenic shock or acute MR can be critically ill even in the absence of hypotension, and so a detailed physical assessment is key. Presence of decreased level of consciousness, hypotension, or modeling suggest hemodynamic instability and may necessitate moving the patient to a more monitored or intensive care setting. Your physical exam should involve a full set of vital signs, general appearance, assessment of the jugular venous pressure, and auscultation for heart sounds and murmurs. In the vital signs, make note of extremes of pulse and blood pressure. General appearance of pallor, diaphoresis, looking sick, are signs of poor tissue perfusion, like in acute MR. In patients with MR, S1 can be diminished as the leaflets fail to coopt well. The classic murmur of MR is hollow systolic and best heard over the apex, though the wide variety of etiologies can produce variation in murmur characteristics. For example, patients with mitral valve prolapse often have a systolic click preceding the systolic murmur, which often starts in mid-systole. Furthermore, radiation of the MR murmur can depend on which direction the regurgitant jet is oriented. Posterior lateral jets often produce radiation to the axilla, and anteromedial jets may radiate to the base of the heart and neck. Importantly, up to 50% of patients with moderate to severe MR may have no clinically audible murmur, particularly in acute MR and in patients with cardiogenic shock, making MR difficult to reliably diagnose on clinical exam alone. 
Eliciting supportive examination findings is important, including a pulse exam to detect atrial fibrillation, a precordial exam looking for RV heave and loud P2, which suggests pulmonary hypertension, and examining the point of maximal impulse, which if laterally displaced would suggest LV dilatation and long-standing chronic MR. Assess for volume status looking for hypervolemia with elevated JVP, three or more centimeters above sternal angle is elevated. Also, auscultation of the lungs for crackles is important as patients with acute MR or chronic MR and heart failure in a state of exacerbation will usually have pulmonary edema. Finally, examine the lower extremity for pitting edema in the ankles or proximally up to the knees. Now let's talk about the workup. In an acute care setting, the workup for a patient with suspected MR and signs of heart failure should investigate for all common causes of hypoxia, which has a broad differential diagnosis. A chest x-ray should be obtained for all patients as findings of pulmonary edema or pleural effusions suggest a cardiac cause of hypoxia. In contrast, consolidative opacities suggest a non-cardiac cause for the patient's hypoxia. Useful laboratory investigations include basic electrolytes to assess for sodium disorders such as hyponatremia, which may be secondary to a state of volume overload. A creatinine is also important to assess for AKI, which in a patient with MR and heart failure is most likely due to cardiorenal syndrome or cardiogenic shock. All patients should also have a 12-lead ECG. There are no specific electrocardiographic findings associated with MR itself, and so patients with MR may present with a normal ECG. Complications or etiologies of the disease, however, may be evident on ECG. For example, LA dilatation seen in chronic MR may produce a large P wave or P mitrali or produce comorbid atrial fibrillation. Acute MR as a complication of an acute coronary syndrome may present with ECG findings which indicate myocardial ischemia along with an elevated troponin. The single best diagnostic tool for the diagnosis and grading of MR is transthoracic echocardiography. A formal TTE will be able to not only evaluate the severity of MR, but also suggest possible etiologies, evaluate ventricular function, and diagnose any concomitant valvulopathies. The urgency of an echocardiogram should be proportional to the stability of a patient. Stable patients with only exertional symptoms should have a non-urgent echo, while critically ill patients should receive urgent echocardiography, often at the bedside in cases of suspected acute MR. Now let's talk about the treatment. Critically ill patients with acute MR require urgent treatment. In confirmed cases of acute MR, the definitive therapy is surgical repair of the valve apparatus. The exact timing of surgical intervention is subject to some debate and may depend on the underlying etiology, but all cases of acute MR with hemodynamic compromise warrant urgent cardiac surgery evaluation. Medical therapy for acute MR focuses on stabilizing the patient as a bridge to surgery. Treatment in this case requires a critical care setting with continuous cardiac telemetry, pulse oximetry, and close nursing care. Continuous hemodynamic monitoring by arterial line may be helpful, as the mainstay of medical therapy in critically ill patients is afterload reduction. Reducing the systemic vascular resistance, or afterload, improves the ratio of systemic LV output to LV output regurgitating into the LA. This is best achieved by IV infusions of nitrates, such as nitroprusside, targeting a normal systemic blood pressure. Afterload reduction is understandably contraindicated in patients with systemic hypotension, which may be present in patients with severe hemodynamic compromise. 
In those situations, patients may require mechanical circulatory support, such as an intraaortic balloon pump, for stabilization prior to emergency surgery. In ambulatory patients with chronic primary MR, definitive therapy is also cardiac surgery. Surgery is generally indicated when LV systolic dysfunction develops, or at the onset of any symptoms. In ideal cases, all patients with isolated chronic MR should have valve intervention prior to the onset of LV dysfunction, and so medical therapy is only used when there is LV dysfunction that is not expected to be reversed with surgery. In these cases, treatment would be with guideline-directed medical therapy for heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. Ambulatory patients with functional MR usually see improvement in their MR with guideline-directed medical therapy. Unfortunately, some patients may progress despite optimal medical management and require valve intervention for intractable symptoms or critical illness. In these cases, valve surgery or percutaneous procedure such as a mitroclip may be indicated. Patients with chronic MR or functional MR admitted for heart failure exacerbations should be treated similarly to any other patient with heart failure. Diuresis with IV furosemide to a eubulemic state is the mainstay of treatment. In cases of severe MR with heart failure, patients may benefit from afterload reduction, but this should be done in a monitored setting and with the expertise of a cardiologist or intensivist, as treatment can depend on other valvulopathies or cardiopulmonary disorders that are also present. Okay, let's finish with our medicine minute. Mitral valve prolapse, a common cause of mitral regurgitation, was initially described in the 1960s and thought to be much more common than its true prevalence due to limited means of clinical evaluation. At that time, an audible systolic click was the only clue to diagnosis, and mitral valve prolapse was frequently misrepresented in medical literature as a common benign cause of chest pain or palpitations, especially among young women. It was not until the popularization of echocardiography decades later that a prevalence of 1-3% to among adults was able to be estimated. Alright, that's all for today. Thank you for listening to today's episode entitled Going Backwards, an Approach to Mitral Regurgitation. This episode was written by Dr. Arjun Sharma, Internal Medicine Resident, and reviewed by Dr. Siddhartha Srivastava, General Internist, and Dr. Oz Almufle, Cardiologist. The Internetwork series is created by Allison Lai and is executively managed by Zara Morali and Leia Karianopoulos. This episode is recorded and produced by Leia Karianopoulos. Theme music by Lakshmi Santhamoan. If you like this podcast, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to check out www.theinternetwork.com for the associated infographic. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you again soon.